Hi, and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together two leaders from different organisations to share stories about how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. Two interesting guests this time. First of all, Mark Livingston. He's chief executive of Pharmacy to You, the online prescription delivery company that dispatches 1.2 million medicines direct to patients every month from a warehouse in Leeds. Livingston has a career spent in startups. He was involved in the snacks by mail company Grays and also the DVD delivery startup Love Film, uh, which was acquired by Amazon. Joining him in this episode is Geeta Nanda. She's chief executive of Metropolitan Thames Valley, one of the UK's largest housing associations with 57,000 homes, building another 2,000 new properties every year. Nanda has spent much of her career in housing associations and was operations director at the Notting Hill Housing Trust. You can read more about both of my guests in the episode notes for this podcast. We're supported, as usual, by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Saxbam have over 30 years of experience in placing talented individuals into a huge variety of organisations and groups. You can find out more about their services, including board review and executive assessment at saxbam.com. I began the conversation asking Geeta what it was about her leadership role that got her out of bed in the morning. I think it's really the purpose of what we're about as an organisation. So, you know, we help so many people. We house over 110,000 people. They range from people who are older people, people who need care and support, right through to those first-time buyers or key workers, hospital workers, etc. So for me, it's all about the sort of providing that service for that customer and that home. And from that home means people can really build their lives. Because as soon as you read about Metropolitan Thames Valley and look at the website, this kind of organisation is not just bricks and mortar. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, the building the home is really important. And obviously, it's the base from which everybody builds their lives. But, you know, for me, it's all about the place that people live. It's around the community that builds around them. It's also about, you know, what more we can do to help people establish themselves in that community, as part of that community, and also what they can do to progress within their lives. And, and you know, we have quite a clear role in that. But, you know, for many people, you're there to provide a basic service. But as a housing association, you're really knitted into that, uh, those different partnerships and communities um, to really build the organisation and, and those homes. And Mark, to come to you with Pharmacy to You, fast, fast growing company, I think about 70 million in annual revenues uh, doubling every year. To stick with the bed analogy, what um, what keeps you awake at night with that venture? I think just keeping it all together. I mean, obviously, we're we're highly disruptive. We're growing very rapidly. You know, the wheels often kind of come loose, if not fall off. So I think it's just the continuity of making sure that you can keep up with that growth that uh, keeps me awake. The reverse of that is, you know, what gets me excited. And that is... I know it sounds crass, but I genuinely think, you know, both Geeta and I in our respective businesses feel that we're making a difference. And I think that's a really important thing. We, we're serving customers better. We're helping them be more adherent to their drug programs and we're saving the NHS money and we're creating jobs. So I think, you know, all of that together is, is, a, is a really interesting combination. So to explain the model, there's about, uh, it's probably gone up since I read this, but I think 1.2 million prescription items you're sending out every month from your warehouse in Leeds 
Um, these are this is the res- repeat prescription business, if you like. These are packets that people would otherwise have to go into the chemist for, and and you're simplifying this, so doing what tech disruptors do, and increasing the convenience. Is that the main thrust? I, I, I think you've summarised it. I've got it. Great. I think yeah. you've summarised it really well. well, well yeah, we'll, we'll draw it there. We'll draw we, it. Yeah, exactly. Well done. Well, there are 43% of the UK population have a repeat chronic condition for which they receive a drug, principally funded by the NHS. We enable that consumer to be more adherent because we liaise with their GP, centrally dispense it out of Leeds, and send it free of charge to their door we are growing really rapidly however our market share is still kind of one to one and a half percent so in terms of our journey we are towards the end of the first chapter of no doubt 25 chapters so we're on a bit of a mission and as you say approaching a run rate of about 80 million pounds doubled each year we see our opportunity if you judge it by market share terms, you know, we don't see why we can't aspire to get to 10 to 15%. Now, shooting for that may mean that we're a little bit short, but if you have audacious goals and big ambitions, even getting halfway is all right. Mm. And do you worry about how fast you go because there are other competitors in the market? It's a measure, isn't it? If you go too fast, as you say, sometimes wheels can fall off. Yeah, growth is a really tricky thing. I've, I've had the good fortune to go through it four or five times now in other ventures that I've set up and run. Patience, which isn't a natural attribute of mine, is something that you have to learn and adapt to. And obviously what we do is is an exceptionally important thing. We can't afford for wheels to fall off with drug programmes because they're a little bit more important than you know what film you're going to watch next or whether or not you're going to get your snack food through the post, which are other businesses I've been involved with. So, you know, we are exceptionally diligent in our clinical excellence and we will control and rein back growth whenever or if ever we felt that we were unable to assure the 99.991% clinical accuracy that we currently have. Yeah, I was going to come on to some of those other ventures later, Mark, because it does seem that during your career you have kept Royal Mail in business. <laughs> I think I'm the only one, yeah. You need a few more Mark Livingstons and Maybe. share prices. Yeah, I wish they on. would reflect that, yeah. yeah. Gita, people might not associate it with an organisation like yours, a housing association, but there's growth as well, isn't there, there? You're adding, I think in the last year you added 1,000 new homes and, and typically you look to add 2,000. Yeah, so I think housing associations are one of the biggest sort of providers of new homes in the country and actually listening to Mark around, you know, that growth trajectory that you have I mean, it's interesting because we're kind of long, long term businesses, you know, so we've sort of been around since the sort of 50s, you know, 60s. And through those periods, through those different decades, you have real differences in terms of your growth. And sometimes, you know, you're the darling of government, you get money thrown at you, sometimes there's nothing, sometimes you're over the years, we've become much more commercial. So it's from our borrowings and our asset base that's grown, etc. So, you know, we really recognise that sort of explanation you've Mm. just given that you've got to be able to catch up with your growth. When you build a home, it's not just building that home, it's got to make sure you've got the quality, then you've got to get the management service right, you've got to repair all those homes. So, you know, we always try and make sure that we're providing our purpose really is to to address homelessness and to make sure that mm. we're providing you know homes for the nation but we've got to make sure that whatever we build, we can manage the, the consequential elements of what comes next. So where are you on the darling chart at the moment with the government? <laughs> Well, I think at the moment uh, we're seen as organisations and a sector that is reliable. You know, we always do deliver, always deliver the numbers that we've been set Mm. and we outperform. You know, I think the government need us and the people have 
you know, people need us to provide those mm. those affordable homes. And to divert into politics, but not for long, uh, what your take on the housing crisis? You say, you've definitely said there that the housing associations are doing their bit. So the implication is that someone somewhere else isn't. We're still short. And going into election time, the politicians always promise we can build this huge number. And it, it was very difficult to, to make these numbers stick, I think, when they're actually in government. Local authorities are doing more at the moment, but... What they can do is the numbers that are required mean that you need to have a whole host of different providers that are sort of aiming for those numbers. So it's really important that local authorities are building again. I think that's great. They've got some support to do that, but they've been out of the game for a long time and it's very difficult. You can't just suddenly gain all the skills and expertise to be able to sort of deliver huge numbers if you've not been doing it for a long time. Housing associations have been growing and producing a lot of homes. We could do more. We could do more if we have more money. But it's not just about the number of homes built, but it's the type of home that's built and Mm. how affordable it is. And the more affordable the home is, i.e. if it's rented homes and they're at a a lower social rent, the more subsidy needs to go into that. Mm. And that's either that's grant or it's land or, you know, the subsidy has to come from somewhere. So it's fantastic. People are putting housing at the top of the agenda and it's mm. fantastic that the numbers are big but the money needs to follow. Mark, i come back to you. 350 or so staff uh, in Leeds. What do they get when you go into the office? What's your style? I would like to think we've built a real meritocracy. I would like to think my style is pretty unbureaucratic, pretty approachable. I say I would like to think because, of course, everyone has a perception of how they're judged and sometimes, quite often, you can be in for a bit of a nasty surprise when you actually ask people honestly to kind of hold up the mirror to you. But I I would like to think that it's the kind of characteristics I've described. Hopefully, you know, exuberant, excited, demanding are kind of things that I... I would like to think are part of our culture and a real pride in, as I say, just making a difference and believing we're doing things differently to the benefit of both the NHS and the consumer. Do you get that from doing it so many times with different launches? I guess the the investors, because you're in that startup environment, rather than, you know, the whole range of stock market investors choosing you or backing you as the CEO, you have to really get these big investors who commit from their funds on side. They want, they want someone reliable, if you like, who's done it before, who's going to keep the show on the road. Yeah, you've got this horrible chicken and egg, which is... You know, they want new talent to come and make a return on their investment and run and build successful businesses. But equally, there is no substitute for having done it before, you know, good, bad or ugly. And and I've certainly done good, bad and ugly. I think you are right in saying that it can be quite nepotistic, it can be quite insular and it can be quite repetitious because the pool of people who have successfully built then sold to trade buyers four or five times wide, Mm. you know, 100 million plus transactions time in, time out, you literally get down to a fairly small gene pool effectively Mm. just because that's just just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Mm. But then they want to take risk out of the system. So, you know, let's get Mark back in. Yeah, but getting Mark back in may or may not be the right choice, you know, because Mark will do what Mark's done before and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's right in the future. Yeah. (laughs) Geeta, what's your management style? I'd say it was open and collaborative. I think that's the kind of organisation we want to to create. But we've got uh, 1,800 people over many, many different sites. Some of those... That's your staff, 1,800. 1,800, yeah. yeah. And, you know, some of them might be in a care home many, many miles away and some will be in head office. Some will be in sort of uh, development teams that are driven by, uh, you know, producing homes and uh, working in quite a commercial environment. And then you've got 
you know, you've got those housing management staff that are really mm. working with the residents on the ground. So we have sort of many different businesses, I think, within uh, the organisation. And, and naturally, yeah. you get sort of different bits of culture within all those different businesses. And it's a very mixed model, as you say. It seems like there's the homes for key workers, there's rental, there's uh, shared ownership. And then I think to, to fund a lot of that, because you've you, you know, big numbers talking about metropolitan Thames Valley, you're also building homes on the open market to kind of recycle back in and, and fund the affordable that's right yeah. is that how it works yeah that's right Phew. and we have that's very good very good he's very good isn't he <laughs> very good I, re- I read the briefing note yeah. i don't know who wrote it yeah it's very good yeah so we have sort of commercial activities so yeah. we take full risk there we often do that in joint ventures with other partners so what can we bring to the partnership and what does somebody else bring to the partnership so you know we know what we're good at and we know what we want to achieve and we try and work with partners who are different to us who can bring different expertise we've also got fizzy which is our um uh, market rent branded, um, uh, you know, build to rent schemes. And um, again, we've worked with investors to bring investment into the market. We were the first people to actually bring investment into that market and start building that whole sector, which is sort of thriving now. So I think that's an example mm-hmm. of where housing associations with their skills can actually create different models, which can be sort of incubators uh, to a wider sector, which then sort of can start thriving. But how do you put your stamp on it? Because you have got investors who put money in through the bond market. And so yeah. On. But you have to make sure that the per- you've said it, I think, twice already, the purpose has got to be at the top. And unlike, say, a house builder on the stock market, you've got to say, well, actually, we're, we're here for the community first. You'll get your return, but you have to stand in line almost. Well, I mean, I think it's quite simple, really, in that there's a level of risk we take, but we don't take. We have a, a whole range of assets and uh, a return that we're getting off our whole range of assets. So, you know, when we're going to the bond market, they're looking at us as an organisation overall in terms of our market mm. risk versus our sort of um, our core business, if you like. And so we need to make sure that we're not overstretching ourselves in terms of that market activity. When we do something like, as I said, Fizzy, which is around our branded market rent proposition, we've got investors that are just coming directly into growing that sort of uh, market rent portfolio. So it's quite different to if you're going to the bond market. Mm. So we have have banks we borrow, we've got the bond market we've got uh, private investors so sorry nice of the banks you have to yeah well there you go <laughs> long-term pl- debt with them so people have got a, a sense of the numbers i mean you, you invested uh, probably about 450 million pounds last year in existing stock new land and building new homes and so on so it's not playing at the edges here no i mean we've got two billion borrowing so you know yeah. we've we've we've, yeah. we've got you know fifty-seven thousand homes two billion and borrowing there's um a, you know a lot of money that needs to go into the investment yeah. of our existing stock etc as well so you know we're big businesses if you were to put us on a, you know, mm. on a FTSE on. company, we're on a, two, yeah, you know, FTSE absolutely. 250 sort of thing. So, you know, with our sort of borrowings and our outgoings. But the difference is, I suppose, is that first and foremost, we are there for the community and we are there for our residents. But that doesn't mean you're not commercial in your approach. It doesn't mean you're not efficient in terms of what you're doing. And I think, you know, that's the thing about social enterprise in a way. I always say we've got a bigger bottom line than PLCs because any every, everything we can make we return back into building homes or providing services for mm. our residents and that's a really really great motivator mm. for us to make sure that we do things well and we do things properly. The thing you might not have known you have in common you've both gone through mergers in the last couple of years so I think it's very interesting how leaders regard mergers and, and crash two organisations together I mean Mark I think you were leading chemistdirect.co.uk in 2015 mm-hmm. uh, in 2016 Chemist Direct came together with Pharmacy to You, mm-hmm. kind of two companies, two startups in the same kind of area, and you were appointed CEO. So 
What's the job like there? What what does a good merger look like? Just to put a bit more fat on the kind of history of the story. So I basically was running Chemist Direct. I identified a really, really interesting built business model that was evolving that Pharmacy to You had developed, felt that they could do with proper funding, proper commercial team to really realise the opportunity they had. So I basically drove a merger. I, I wasn't appointed after the merger. I took my asset, put it okay. on the table, and then merged it with Pharmacy to You. And, you know, it's a bit of a dance because you've got to appease relative shareholders about respective valuations. You've got to determine and make hard decisions about management. There will be and ultimately are casualties, and you can't really sugarcoat that. It's just the way of the world. And good managers and leaders, in my view, are pretty effective and expeditious in making sure what needs to happen happens pretty quickly because no one likes living with a cloud over them. And um, certainly for a culture of a company and the merged entity, it's really important to establish what the new animal is like, which hopefully is the best of breed, you know, amongst the two that you've merged. So um, you've got to be a bit of a visionary and, and set out of the shell, you know, one plus one is more than two. Yes. But then at the same time, yeah. you've got to pick up the people. Yeah, that it's, it's a multifaceted role. You'd certainly have to set out the vision of why this entity with this entity is, you know, one plus one equals three, as you say. And then you have to determine, you know, where the gaps are within both organisations and where there aren't gaps who are the most capable people for the roles that you've determined. And, and effectively, as you know, you start with roles first, not individuals, and then you do it on a kind of points basis and, you know, appraisal basis of who's got the, the relative skill set to most fulfil the roles that you think you will need to take the merged entity forward. And why do you enjoy it? Oh, I love it because I love making things. I've always enjoyed making things, be it with my hands, be it with cars, be it with taking things to pieces and, you know, sort of putting them back together again. This for me is 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 what I really, really, really enjoy, which is take two really interesting companies and try and build something that is so much more than the component parts of it. And, you know, it's got equal frustrations as it has, you know, joy. But I would say that's what I really, really enjoy. So a good company is just like an Austin Healy, really. <laughs> Principally, yeah. <laughs> Geeta, do you recognise that take on mergers? Because you're, I think I've got this straight, you were running Thames Valley before. Yes. You tried to merger, a merge with someone else. I think it was Genesis in Not Notting yeah. Hill. Didn't happen. Yeah. You changed jobs to Metropolitan. Yeah. And then within about a year... You've merged with Thames Valley. You were not I wouldn't say desperate for a deal, but you were you were up you were up for a deal. It's got to be the right merger, doesn't it? And I think the aims for us at Metropolitan and both at Thames Valley really was to find something where we could build a stronger, more resilient organisation because, you know, there's lots of changes happening and there's lots of knocks happening. And actually, I think it's being really successful at the moment because what we saw, what Thames Valley had was a, was a more sort of commercial organisation, broader in its sort of tenure mix. And what Metropolitan had, you know, really uh, efficient sort of care and support um, activities as well as regeneration at its heart and therefore able to do those sort of bigger more complex projects so when you bring it together you've got an organization that can do the whole thing you know it's kind of got the partnerships and the commercial expertise and it's mm. got the real sort of social assets and the activity within those local authorities that make you much uh, stronger and a bigger partner and I think that was the aim really is that in the housing association world the small organizations are fine you know they, they kind of carry 
on in mm. their very local communities. Then there's the larger ones. And in the middle somewhere, you've got to decide which way you're going to go. You know, Are you going to be a player just in your local area or in the local boroughs? Or if you want to grow, how are you going to be able to do that? And how are you therefore going to get the best talent in the sector? And Some people will say, oh, well, you know, leaders and CEOs always say bigger is better because they get a bigger train set and so on. But why is scale particularly important in your sector? Yeah, I don't think bigger is better, you mm. know, but I think it's different. And if you're going to make the most impact that you can as an organisation in society, then if you're a bigger organisation that has that broader asset base against which you can borrow and more resilience as you get go through sort of different, uh, you know, different sort of economic times, then you can withstand those economic hits and you can still keep building homes you can still sort of Mm. um, carry on in terms of your sort of primary purpose as an organisation so you know I think small organisations are fantastic medium ones big ones I think as I said we need everyone to solve Mm. the housing crisis Mm. there's there's a lot going on but I think you can undertake a lot more activity you can take more risk and you can therefore innovate and create if you're that larger organisation So how did that merger go? I mean it's very much I think I read that it wasn't I can give you all the credit if you like but it seems like the chairman of the two organisations when you were moving across they got on well and thought there might be something but but for you you you've left the building and then sort of a little while later you're on the phone you know Hi, guys, it's me again. How does it work culturally? Well, I think um, obviously the benefit actually is having run both of the organisations. Yes. You know when that merger comes together, actually, you know exactly what the positives are and where the gaps are in both organisations. You have a head start, really, around when you bring them together to really understand the vision of what the new organisation can be. And whenever you go into a new organisation, it takes a year, really, to kind of get to underneath it and understand what works. So having been uh, chief exec of both organisations, I think was a real advantage. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. You can see what's going on Mm. and you can really see where the benefits are and, and how you could bring it together. Mark, what's gone wrong in what is now three years, Pharmacy to You, and how have you learned from that or acted on it? What's gone wrong? That's a very good question. Uh, we haven't always achieved our growth rates that we set out to achieve. Really? You must um, have some very high yeah, targets. They're, they're, they're pretty ambitious, but we haven't always achieved them. And at some point, we've had to think about other considerations such as cash optimization and conservation versus just kind of rampant growth. So that hasn't gone at times well. I think as a trend line, it's gone really well. But But there are certainly kind of peaks and troughs in that, as you would expect. We possibly haven't put enough time and energy into the training and development of our team, our core team, something that we've addressed over the balance of this year. We sort of kind of rushed at it to, in an effort to get things done and get going as quickly as possible. I think in retrospect, we could have spent a bit more time making completely sure that we were developing the individuals within the roles that we had rescoped. So you're asking people to do different things. Mm. And there's always a benefit of just kind of taking stock and kind of, you know, take, standing back for a bit. So, you know, it comes back to patience, something that I'm not richly endowed in whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, um, so I think we could have been a bit patient. But but on the whole, what's gone wrong? Well, actually, not much versus what's gone right, which is, you know, pretty much a heck of a yeah. lot. Yeah. So, yeah. What about things like safety and controls? I know this is before the, the combination, but there was an issue for pharmacy to you, uh, you know, fined for problems with data protection, setting names and addresses of patients without consent. I know this goes back sort of four or five years, but when you were merging in, did you have to make sure this was something you were going to put focus on? The fact we're talking about it so many years on, it, it does matter. People need to trust startups like yours. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I can't comment on what happened in 2014, as it was before my time and before the management team that's now running the business's time. Clearly, data is absolutely vital. And obviously, under new GDPR legislation, the customer is in control of that data and a third party can't do anything with it without their total and explicit consent. So we operate to the highest standards of GDPR compliance. Uh, to make sure that the errors of, and I would say it's attributable far more to naivety than than kind of malice, uh, can never repeat itself. But we, I believe we were talking about you know, 1,200 records that were given to a third party and that third party had misrepresented what they were going to uh-huh. do with them. So I think, I think there is a massive storm in a very, very small teacup, as I understand, but it wasn't on my watch and it's certainly something that this management team will never, ever do again. Yeah, sure. Um, Gita, to talk on safety and issues with you, I know there was a fire recently at one of your sites, Worcester Park, 23 households lost their home. I'm not sure how much you can say about that. Is it still being looked into as to, to what happened? I mean, you know, it was absolutely devastating. Sure. And, you know, meeting those residents who've, who've lost their homes is, you know, it's absolutely tragic. The fire brigade and the Police are still undertaking Fine. their investigations. Okay. There is an issue around, you know, building quality, building safety, which we are really highlighting sure. in terms of, you know, what's been built and designed and, you know, errors within that, which I think is very, very topical at the moment. Yeah, obviously post-Grenfell, everyone post-Grenfell, in this sector yeah. is, is on top of that. Obviously, so we can't talk about the outcome because there's still investigations going on. But what I was interested in is what do you do as the leader when that when that comes through, when you get the text or something? Do you, you get on site or do you step back and let the experts, your people you know, look after the residents? I mean, get on site. You do. You, know, you need to be responsible and also yep. make sure that other people down there are, you know, able to to have all the tools they need to deal with what they're dealing with. So, you know, get get on site, but also make sure you've got the, 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 the right people down there who can deal with the people side, but also the technical side in terms of what's going on. And, yep. and I think these things don't happen often. For any organisation, it's a really difficult time and people feel very emotional within the organisation, obviously dealing with residents who are really emotional as well. So, you know, I think it's one of the, the most challenging things you can do with whenever you have some sure. crisis or emergency like that. But you've not hidden from it. You've written on it in the last few days, an update on, on the website about what MTV is doing. Yeah, I think, you know, our, our point is we need to be totally open and transparent. You know, residents down there want answers as to what the cause and the spread of the fire was. And, you know, we've committed to being completely open in any findings that we find in into any of the surveys that have yeah. undergone and also making sure that we deal with the sort of developer St. James are on that as well. Mm. Mark, I want to delve back into your CV, if I may. And before you were launching this and launching that, head of buying at Woolworths, which I'm, I Good imagine Woolies. involved yeah. a lot of DVDs and CDs. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then managing director of Lego, I think Lego Interactive. That's right. When were you first in charge, if you like? When were people under you and you thought, oh, actually, I'm bit of responsibility. So I got really lucky. I was, as will not surprise you, I'm not an academic. It surprised both my parents who are teachers, but I'm not academic at all. And I joined Woolies as a training manager at 18. And Woolies at the time, putting it politely, was kind of deck chairs on the Titanic. So out of that chaos, one was afforded a huge amount of opportunity, which meant by 26, I was head of buying for the entertainment division of Woolies. That at the time was about £700 million worth of buying responsibility. We had a 38% market share of pre-recorded video, a 26% share of the singles market, you know, 
notoriety such as Cliff Richard wouldn't release his single if we wouldn't stock it. So we were pulling the strings. Did Cliff call you in? <laughs> Absolutely. We run in, We had a couple of run-ins with Cliff, but um, <laughs> as have other people. So um, anyway, we shouldn't, we shouldn't bring up Dear Cliff. Um, but And I tell this to anyone who asks, yeah, 51% of my career is luck. 49% is ability, 51% is luck. And I just had a huge amount of luck and a bit of ability and ended up at 26 with a team of about um, 20 odd people with an enormous buying responsibility. Although at Woolies, it was just how many noughts, it didn't really matter. And that kind of set me on the path. And Kingfisher at the time, which was the amalgam of Woolies, B&Q, yeah. Superdrug, mm. you know, it was, it was the behemoth, had a fast track executive program, which sponsored a master's degree at Sterling. So I then went back to school and the thought of going back to school was horrendous, but I went and did my master's degree for three years, which I did over weekends and, you know, worked incredibly hard to make sure that I could back up what I was doing commercially with some academic kind of prowess and mm. context. And you talk about the Titanic analogy, and we yeah. all know... We all know and unfortunately, you know, it finally went down. <laughs> uh, what, what, 10, 11 years ago, yeah. it finally went. I suppose you've got to give credit to them because they trained you. Yes. In some respect. But when you were there, did you see... Did you feel there was a lack of leadership? Could you sort of feel this was an organisation that might not be with us for the foreseeable? Well, I had a brilliant mentor. I know you may come on to it. Yep. My, one of my most important mentors was a guy called Mike Summers, who at the time was the marketing director of Woolies, and he sort of took me under his wing. I found him incredibly inspiring to work for, incredibly creative, pretty irreverent, pretty unwoolies. And I learnt a lot from him. But I think, you know, however good the management team of Woolies were at the time, strategically, they were in the wrong business. And there was no sustainable business on the high street for a multi-product retailer with the likes of Amazon just coming on. So however good the management team were, it was a zero-sum game mm. and inevitable. It was just mm. a question of time. Mm. Keita, what about your career? All spent in housing associations. And I go back to your operations director at Notting Hill Housing Trust for, for quite a while. That was before the first CEO role. As that operations director, I always think operations director, it's their fault if things don't work. Like being CEO, but without having to have the vision thing, if you like. Is it like that? Yeah, well, it was It was called God, Group Operations Director. You were God? <laughs> yeah. <that was> right. <laughs> what a great title. Yeah. Like Mark, I was, I think I was 27 when I was a deputy housing director. So housing associations went from being sort of woolly jumpers and sandals to suddenly being able to sort of borrow against their assets and the, a whole range of different sort of com activity and we grew and I was very lucky because I was able to quickly go up the sort of ladder and jump a few notches because there was a lot of growth going on in the sector and you have to take those times when things are growing where you can sort of you know take a lead. I was operations director there at Notting Hill and it was my CEO there who said to me, you know, you should you should go and be a chief exec. I'd Trying never, to get rid of you. I, I know, that's what I thought. I said, so I sort of said, look, if you want to have the conversation with me, you know, <laughs> let's go into the room and I understand and, you know, don't worry, I won't make a scene. She said, no, I think you really should be a chief exec. And, and I'd never thought about it till then. So I then went and applied, didn't get the first one and decided I would make sure it was the right organisation. And it was a year before I applied for the next one, which was Thames Valley, which I got. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was all credit to her for sort of encouraging me because I would not have seen it as something I, I thought I'd got my perfect job. I quite enjoyed operations. I quite enjoy the expanse of the, the craziness of it all, really. And I guess you had a big team there. You had a lot of moving parts and that must be everything from building to plumbing, if you like. Little problems to big problems. Yeah, there's everything. And you've got God in your business. Yeah, you've, got, <laughs> you've, got, you've got your, you know, your apprenticeship programme, so you're looking at sort of working with 
big developers around placing apprenticeships for construction apprenticeship programme, which we were running across London to, you know, regeneration teams, community teams, yeah. to shared ownership sales, to, you know, it's a very, very sort of broad job, but it's very exciting. I mean, it's people that come to housing associations have actually no idea what we do. And when they look at it, they say, wow, this is complicated. I'm interested in the skills point because you said the sandals and woolly jumpers, which I guess attracts and retains a certain type of person with certain skills and then suddenly big borrowings and so on. What did you have to do? Were you sort of training and upskilling and going on courses to take all this on board? I think it was just learning actually. I don't, I mean, I didn't go on courses and I didn't go on big programmes or anything Mm. like that. But what I did do is spend time in each of those different bits of the business and, you know, allowed myself some time to run projects I knew nothing about in other bits of the business so that I could get a good handle on it and it's also like at the moment for example you know last weekend we were out there looking for digital skills in our digital team and we were down in Shoreditch and you know at the weekend and you know the team were hanging out there to try and attract people and actually the fact that we're a purpose-driven organization was really really exciting to people so I think you know in the old days people joined because you were sort of seen as more like social workers and it's completely expanded and changed over those years but that's what makes it much more interesting and if you can Mm. just keep learning you know whether it's going back to uni or whatever you just you just keep learning and 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 as long as you've got the same end result which is you know those consumers or changing society or being a much bigger part of it you know you've got that end result you can do it in so many different ways mark what was the difference for you as a boss have left the titanic you're going from a senior ish role in a big big organization and then within a a matter of years if i skip lego you are you're starting things up and you're launching ventures it takes a a different type of leader doesn't it so yeah so i went from woolies uh had my own software company and then got a a real lucky break at lego where i kind of built all their interactive interests so you know what they did in software you know worked with some incredibly talented people very fortunate to do that went on to build what lego is today in software and then got involved a bit with the theme parks ran legoland windsor uh and various other bits and bobs which which yeah with three (laughs) three kids at an age of below five they thought that was the coolest job dad could have and I really really enjoyed that for a year and a half that was good fun I think I was a bit if anything I was a little bit frustrated in big company because I found big company interestingly a lot more restraining in terms of how you get things done and how many people you have to convince to get things done and Lego was an exceptionally collaborative company and that has many virtues but for someone who's relatively focused and determined and kind of and kind of self-focused after eight years can become, you know, not somewhere where you would feel that you're going to thrive for the next 10 years. Yeah, I just decided that it was time to move on and uh, took a massive risk. And I think anyone who builds companies can look at their career and say, there are three or four times in my career where I put everything on 19. And if it didn't come off, then I would have had to go back to square one. Mm. And I had one of those moments at 36 with three lovely children, a fantastic wife, a really expensive mortgage and incredibly expensive private school. I took a massive salary cut and went and picked DVDs in a, in a warehouse in Harlow, Essex, in a company called DVDs on Tap, which then became Love Film. And, you know, the rest is history on that bit. But, you know, if you haven't got a risk attitude, you can't run small businesses because they are absolutely synonymous. And then from then on, really, you've kept looking for those opportunities, whether as an investor yeah. or, or, as, or as a leader. So Gray's um, yeah. w- was very similar to, to Love Film, ex- kind of, except it was snacks in the post. But Gray's is a really great story. And, and this is another thing I've learned. Funny enough, I was interviewed on it a couple of months ago, which is 
I've been really fortunate in my career to work with some absolutely brilliant people, far, far better, far, far more able, far, far more focused, far more entrepreneurial than me. Somehow, somewhere along the line, they've wanted to continue to work with me. And Gray's is a brilliant example of a absolute force of nature by the name of Graham Bosher, who worked for me at Love Film as CIO and in fact was the kind of founder of DVDs on tap, him and another guy. And he worked for me for three years and after Love Film, he worked on this health food through the post business, which at the time was fresh fruit, so no one would back it. And we collectively, with about 20 to 30 other people, ended up raising 1.3 million of our own money and then, again, the rest is history. Grey's went on to be the most successful subscription food brand in the UK and the most successful health food brand ever launched in the US, sold to Carlisle and then in turn Unilever. Graham was at the absolute fulcrum of this, but he also managed to attract some other brilliant people into the business. And, you know, we did something that no private equity or venture capital company would give us the time of day on. That personally is incredibly pleasing as you can imagine yeah what about the point of selling out you know you've been a founder you know like graham you've loved this idea you've lived with it you've probably slept on the floor of the warehouse or, or whatever and remortgaged everything yeah. and then there comes a point at which leaders who sell out there's often a bit of sour grapes you know why have you sold out now and i think the sour grapes probably comes from people who haven't lived through the the hard years and, and haven't got the check being waved under their nose yes. what do you make of that so, so my my observation of this and the way i think about it is I think brilliant businesses are run by brilliant leaders who in turn are running not a sprint but a marathon. Sorry, a relay. The reason why a relay is run so much quicker by four people than it is by one person doing a sprint is because you've got to hand over the baton. And I think, unfortunately, this is the downfall of some leaders not realising when the skill set that they have and the requirements yep. of the company no longer match and it might be better to pass the baton on to someone else. And that's a really, really hard thing to do, especially for a founder, let alone someone who's come in and run it as a chief yep. exec, who tend to be a little bit more objective. But a founder can't give anything up, has problems kind of trusting everyone, not because he or she doesn't trust them, but just because they have such knowledge of the business from every single thing that it does. So I think that's a real challenge for, for leaders you know, and, and I think there are some leaders who should have passed the baton on and could have continued to build a very, very successful business if they had have chosen to pass that baton on at the, at the most appropriate time. Gita, it's not so easy to sell on a housing association because it's, it's a charitable structure. But what do you make of the, the uh, is this housing association industry, if you like, got the quality of leaders it deserves? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I, I think that expression you just had of the of handing over the baton is really important because I see, you know, as I said, we've been around a long time and we're going to be around, hopefully, a lot longer as an organisation. You know, we were set up by entrepreneurs, people, you know, there wasn't a grant around in those days, a woman who was there looking at um, people who'd come, the Windrush generation who had poor housing. You know, they, there was a sort of real purpose to what can we do to improve their lives? And, you know, lots of either church leaders in housing associations or individuals who got together and raised money, bought, bought those first houses. They didn't have a sort of whole government structure behind them or funding, etc. They just did it and they did it out of their own pockets. They did it for a reason. And those and these organisations, our organisations have grown massively and we've changed massively and we will in the future. And therefore, I always say, you know, for a 
you're very lucky to sort of hold that organisation for a part of time in its history. And your job is to make it a bit better Mm. and is to grow it and is to, you know, fulfil its purpose and mission. And that will be different in different ways because externally everything changes, but internally you know you've got to keep going with that mission. And that's really, you know, it's an amazing job to have. And it's also that responsibility is is quite big, actually, because you sort of think, you know, uh, I've got to sort of keep this kind of mission going and this this organisation going through sort of some pretty tough times. But it's a complete honour to be able to do it. Yeah. So I think, you know, you just have that, you have that race, you have it in a different way. And you do need, again, different leaders for different times of, of an organisation's life. And you talk about that heritage then and both of the companies that came together, you can trace them back to Windrush generation. Yeah. And actually, I think, you know, Metropolitan in particular, the original name was the Metropolitan yeah. Coloured People's Housing Association. That's right. It, it was very, you know, diversity at its heart, if you like. I'm interested in your view, we aren't where we should be with diverse leaders, either in your sector or more broadly? No, absolutely. How do we crack that? You know, I think it's a complete shame that uh, in the housing association sector where, you know, if we look at who we house and we look at who who works with us, that there is very limited diversity of leadership at the top of those organisations. And it's something I'm personally committed to and the G15 are working towards, trying to change that within the sector, really. And that's really around... One, recognising it, being able to say, right, it's time to talk about it. And we need to do things in a different way. Those loads of things that have been done over the years, they've not worked. So let's do something radically different to shift it. And you mentioned the G15, which is the, the group of the biggest housing associations in, in London, slightly more impactful than the G7, probably. And, uh, <laughs> and you'll be in charge of it very soon. So this, this podcast is a bit like your warm up for, for getting the crown, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's 18 months. 18, well, it's a, long, it's a long run um, But Yeah, I'm the vice chair at the moment. But I think, I think it's about that collective. If you can collectively, there are things that we won't agree on as organisations and things we do differently but collectively can we have a bigger voice and we've got the National Housing Federation which is the sort of sectors body but the G15 is the sort of London organisations and uh, you know there are a number of things that we have a huge amount of experience of we own a huge amount of homes in London we house one in 10 people we build 25% of all the new homes in London which are all amazing statistics yeah and 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 that's the sort of scale and size if we come together so it is really around what together can we do to make a difference we talked about this at the top but then what is to stop Metropolitan Thames Valley or others scaling up couldn't you just issue another bond? No, I mean, we have to, we we have a limit uh, against uh, what we can do in terms of borrowing against our assets. And there is now a sort of limit, I suppose, with the market as it is in terms of the commercial activity and the surpluses we're going to gain from our surpluses. If you like, the government said, you know, years ago, stretch your balance sheets, do everything you can, you know, let's keep building. And we did, we did that, but we kind of come to the end of, of that business model Not now. Not too stretched, I hope. Well, that's right. That's what I mean. So we're very clear around uh, what we can do and, you know, what the ratings agencies will expect from us and, you know, what the borrowers can expect from us. So, you know, we're, we're quite stretched now. So this is the point at which we need some more subsidy. There's many investors out there that are looking to invest in affordable housing now, but they're not really willing to take the risk. Mark, what's the advice you give to those people who might want to do what you're doing and run organisations like you? Is it is it simply, you know, just get lucky? Fifty-one <laughs> percent of the advice is get I lucky. Think, I think, uh, yeah, that that's um, you, can't, you can't make people get lucky. <laughs> so I think it's it's work hard. It's it's the simple basics. You know, surround yourself with people who are better than you. Look at opportunities. Yep. Satisfy yourselves that not only is there a 
what's the analogy? There's a gap in the market, but there's also a market in the gap. So, you know, people come up with great ideas, but actually That's often good. they're just not big enough ideas and the people genuinely don't really want them. So uh, there's no magic formula to it. You just have to work hard and go for it. But if you Absolutely hadn't done, have to go for it. But if you hadn't done that, you you get into that situation. Well, if you hadn't done that that training at that time, yeah. then it, you, you'd be in a very different position now. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any substitute for as they call it blue chip, proper big grown up company yep. with processes with practices for a period of time. I think that's fantastic groundings. And I learned an awful lot from my big company experience, which I've I've managed to adapt and sometimes fall back on in doing smaller companies. Small company. And Gita, we we didn't cover off mentoring. You said I think it was your boss at Notting Hill Housing Trust who you thought was going to sack you, but actually they were trying to push you up. Who else has helped you? Who else has, has um, given you ideas to push you on? I think I've been very lucky with some of the chairs I've worked with. Um, you know, who've kind of helped me think a bit differently. Typically on our boards, we have sort of people from every sector or completely different sectors and they give you a different way of thinking and um, and I've had some great CEOs as well through my career that I've reported to who've um, you know really helped me think about that next step and what I need to do to prepare myself to do it. Mark Livingston and Geeta Nanda thanks so much for the conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, including a conversation with Robin Mortimer. He's chief executive of the Port of London Authority. And here he is recalling some wise words from his first chairman on how to lead better. The chairman who appointed me, Dame Helen Alexander, who sadly passed away mm. a couple of years ago, she she said to me after our first board meeting, she said, I mean, that was great, you know, re- really good. But she said, you know, you need to remember you're in charge. You're not here, <laughs> you know, just to, you know, sort of put ideas to us because that's sort of natural tendency of a civil servant to sort of say, well, you know, here's a recommendation and over to you. And I guess one of the learnings for me has been, you know, actually, no, you pitch up and you say, look, what I think we should do is this. And then obviously you invite views and, you know, people always do have views and that's what the board's there for.